This week on the show, we're announcing Hyperbola BSD. We have a tutorial for IPFW in kernel NUT for you on FreeBSD. Uh, Wayland and WebRTC are now enabled on NetBSD 9 slash Linux. The LDB threading support is now ready for mainline NetBSD. OpenSSH got U2F slash FIDO support in base. And DRM i915 updates for Dragonfly BSD in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 332, the BSD Hyperbole, recorded for or on the, actually, the 8th of January 2020. Uh, hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan G. Ah, just need to get back into the regular recording vibe here. Uh, but we're back from the holidays. I hope you had enjoyable times. Happy New Year and welcome to 2020, which still seems weird to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's still new. It's uh, Although people are still arguing whether it's a new decade or not, or whether that's only starting in 2021. Right, counting from zero and so on. <laughs> yeah, as computer science or computer people do. But uh, that doesn't stop us from bringing you the news this year, as always. And uh, we start off this year, or today actually, with Hyperbola BSD and the initial announcement for it. Yeah, this one's a bit weird you know slightly good news in that hey some distro is kind of switching from linux to bsd that sounds interesting and then the details are really strange <laughs> they say due to the linux kernels rapidly proceeding down an unstable path we're planning to implement their os on a derived from several bsd implementations I say, this was not an easy decision to make, but we wish to use our time and resources to create a viable alternative to the current operating system trends that are actively seeking to determine users' choice or to undermine users' choice and freedoms. You know, when they use the, the freedoms word and their GPL people, it's always a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> so the first bit of very strange news from this is uh, this will not be a distro of the BSD it's based on, which is OpenBSD, made a hard fork of OpenBSD's kernel and user space, and will include new code written under the GPL v3 or the LGPL v3, and attempting to replace any GPL incompatible parts or non-free parts. There aren't really many non-free parts of OpenBSD, and especially not ones that could be effectively removed. You know, if it's firmware for the Wi-Fi, it's firmware for the Wi-Fi. Do you want Wi-Fi or not? Yeah. And so on. And those are generally not included, but downloaded separately with the firmware fetcher they have. Doing a fork of OpenBSD seems weird because it makes it harder for you to continue to get updates from OpenBSD. And, you know, if, if you're picking OpenBSD for a reason, uh, it would be to continue to get the development that comes out of OpenBSD, right? So a hard fork seems weird. Uh, and then if you're doing all your new code under the GPL, then you're none of your code is going to make it back into OpenBSD. And this seems like a really strange set of choices. It's like, we're going to base on OpenBSD because they're, sort of the, they're good and they do the security reviews and so on. But we're not going to use any of their future security reviews because GPL. Mm -hmm. So it seems like they're drifting uh, further and further apart over the, over the years or over the times. Yeah, and then they're like, some of the reasons they decided to do this was that the uh, Linux kernel was forcing the adoption of DRM including HDCP. Now, I don't know if they meant DRM as in 
the direct rendering manager for graphics because that relates to HDCP, the high definition copy protection, uh, or if they mean digital rights management having to do with HDCP, uh, or if they actually meant both. <laughs> OpenBSD uses the DRM driver to do graphics as well. Right? <laughs> Is what else are you going to do if you want to use the Intel graphics driver that's in your laptop? Yeah. That's kind of necessary. <laughs> then another weird one is uh, they're saying the Linux kernel is proposing to adopt usage of Rust, which contains freedom flaws, a term of art I've not heard in a while, uh, and a centralized code repository that is more prone to cyber attack and generally requires internet access to use. Okay. Like, it doesn't require internet access to run the binary, maybe just to fetch dependencies? Yeah, is this, is this from the user's perspective or from the developer perspective? I think developer, but even then, it's like there's... I, I don't know that that's really a thing. Anyway, uh, the Linux kernel being written without security in mind, talking about how the KSPP project is basically dead and GRSEC and so on are not free anymore. Many GNU user space and core utilities are also forcing adoption of features without build time options to disable them, like Pulse Audio or SystemD. Rust or Java and so on. So I don't think core utils are you know, like the command line utilities. Obviously, don't need Pulse Audio or Java. Now, some user space stuff, sure, but you know there isn't one GNU user space. You know, it's just everything licensed under the GPL is kind of. Well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, they will continue to support their current uh, Linux-based branch until 2022, when their current uh, Linux-Libre kernel reaches the end of its life. But future versions of the Hyperbola OS will be based on BSD, uh, which will have a new kernel and user space and will not be API compatible with any of the previous ones. Uh, and it's intended to be modular and minimalist, so other projects will be able to reuse their code under free license. Although, you know, if they wanted people to reuse their code, that's what the BSD license is for. And, you know, that's why this project was able to adopt the code from OpenBSD. So why... They would want to adopt the code from OpenBSD and then go the opposite way with it. Seems weird, but that's a thing that's happening. We'll have to see what that ends up looking like. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And it's not uh, uh, the typical website where you're like, oh, is it April 1st already? Uh, no, they have forums, they have wikis, they have Git, they have issue trackers. So seems real. Yeah, uh, mostly what will be interesting is because they're starting with a hard fork, even if they started with OpenBSD's head now, by the time they've ready to go, it's probably going to be a version of OpenBSD that's not supported anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be weird. Very old. We'll have to see. Okay, it's certainly interesting as a development. And yeah, oh, we've found there's um, a forum post that kind of sheds a bit more light on the idea behind it. Uh, so... Uh, Zapper here posted that uh, it's just a quick thing. People should know about Hyperbrawler BSD. So... Uh, like people have read the wiki, it appears to be more than just a Libra fork. Uh, indeed, it looks less like a fork and based off of OpenBSD, but with major changes made to make it more Libra. Uh, it might even be more secure because of this. No expert, but yeah. So the wiki, uh, they say that they should read the, the special wiki page there where it says that Hyperbola BSD at, uh, has the proper name of the operating system which is being developed by Hyperbola. 
It is a BSD descendant system with GPL-compatible license pre preserved, non-compatible ones removed, and new code written under GPL3, and new libraries under LGPL3. Okay, so it will be modularized like the GNU, hyper, uh, GNU operating system by using the Hyperman utility for package management and HyperRC as its default init system. And its kernel is called a HyperBK and library C as HyperBlibC. And uh, a bit more information in the uh, forum post that we linked in the show notes. So yeah, it's it's a good, uh, in, an interesting mix, let's say. And I... I'm sure we'll hear more about this in uh, this year or uh, 2020 when they do the final switch. Yeah, so either we'll hear lots more about this or we'll hear nothing about this, one of the two. <laughs> if there is yeah, anything new, that we will hear it from us. <laughs> Next one is uh, doing in-kernel NAT with, on FreeBSD using IPFW. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, so this is from neilc.org. And he says, after graduating college, I moved from my uh, home in Brooklyn, New York to Redmond, Washington. Uh, guess where I got a job. Um, <laughs> I wanted to redo my OpenSense firewall, uh, which is currently runs on an HP T730 uh, with a stock, uh, stock FreeBSD using IPFW's in-kernel NAT. Uh, why IPFW? Benchmarks uh, have shown IPFW can be faster, which is especially good uh, for a Tor relay, and because I can Right. Uh, however, one downside of IPFW is that there's a bit less documentation versus PF, uh, or even less uh, examples and so on, especially since a lot of the older examples and setup instructions for IPFW use the user space NATD rather than the in-kernel one. Basically the same, um, It you know, the documentation sometimes. You know, I, I wrote an article for the FreeBSD Journal to try to fix this. <laughs> but since his T730 is already packed, uh, he's currently testing on an old PC with two NICs and a laptop as the client using USB Ethernet. Ooh, ah, well, so, it's a start. <laughs> uh, might have a little trouble with the uh, pushing the performance as hard as he wants with that uh, particular configuration, but... It's a start, yeah. But basically showing um, loading the kernel modules, IPFW and IPFW NAT. Uh, you want to be careful doing that uh, because the default for IPFW is default deny. Uh, so if you just load the kernel module, you will immediately lock out all the traffic until you add a firewall rule to allow something. Mm. Uh, then he has a basic rule set here. And basically you set firewall underscore enable equals yes. And firewall script equals the path to your shell script that has your firewall rules in it. Uh, and in this case, he's got uh, NAT going out his Ethernet adapter and has configured a port forward so that port 9001 on the public IP will forward to a specific machine inside his NAT. And it kind of shows how that works. Ah, and so you don't need any extra settings for the special in-kernel NAT? This is just a given when you run this? Uh, basically, when you load, if you have the IPFW underscore NAT kernel module loaded, and then you just do IPFW NAT rules, they use the in-kernel NAT. If you want to use the user space one, you would have an IPFW divert rule where you divert the packet out into user space for the program to modify it. And it's much slower, so there's no reason to do that anymore. Okay, got it. Yeah, so this seems like a, a straightforward way of running that. And yes, if you have a better connectivity, then we could also maybe look at some benchmarks to actually prove that it's faster. But yeah, if people want to replicate this on their own machines, that's easy to follow because it's just a couple of lines. Uh, and if you want to know a bit more about it, check out the FreeBSD journal article I wrote on it a while back. Uh, those are free now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're available for uh, free download. They're PDFs or any other uh, pocket mobile format if you want to read it on your uh, handhelds, wherever. And uh, yeah, you can get all the issues uh, from last year or the year before even. <laughs> So, time for the news roundup this week. The first news roundup, always exciting. Uh, we found for you a heads-up, Wayland and WebRTC enabled for NetBSD 9 slash Linux. So, that's news from the NetBSD land. And uh, so, this is on the package source users list. And um, Nia is writing... Uh, this is just a heads up that the Wayland option is now turned on by default for NetBSD 9 and Linux in cases where it peacefully coexists with X11. Uh, so right now this affects the following packages. So this is uh, Graphics Mesa Lib, uh, Devel SDL2, uh, WWWebKit-GTK and X11GTK3. Uh, the WebRTC option has also been enabled by default on NetBSD 9 for two Firefox versions. This is uh, Firefox, the generic one. And Firefox uh, 668. Yeah, right. They don't do the dot anymore. No, that's not the long-term support one. It's just another version they have, I guess. And they ask that uh, to keep them informed uh, of any fallout. Hopefully, there will be none. So they made a good job here. And if you want to try out Wayland-related things on NetBSD 9, uh, wm slash vlog slash message may be of interest to you. Yeah, so the window manager Velox apparently is uh, set up so you can try Wayland on NetBSD. Yeah, um, maybe we'll hear more about Wayland next or next year. This year, <laughs> this is too young. The year already, um, because yeah, it seems like it's on the horizon and people are you know using it more and more, or at least looking at it, what it can do, and maybe we'll see more in this year about it. Uh, then more from NetBSD in our next article: uh, LLDB threading support is now ready for mainline. So we reported a couple of items in the past about it, like the progress reports and some of the uh, stumbling stones they overcame. And now it seems like they are ready for prime time. Uh, this is on NetBSD's blog, of course. And the Upscreen describes LLDB, they write, as a next-generation high-performance debugger. It is built on top of LLVM slash Clang, uh, their toolchain, and features great integration with it. At the moment, it primarily supports debugging C, C++, and Object C code, and there is interest in extending it to more languages. Uh, in February, they started working on LLDB as contracted by the NetBSD Foundation. We reported this. Uh, so far, they've been working on enabling continuous integration, squashing bugs, improving NetBSD core file support, extending NetBSD's ptrace interface to cover more register types, and fix Compat32 issues, fixing watchpoint support. Then they started working on improving thread support, which is taking longer than expected. And there's a separate report from September for that. Uh, so far, the number of issues they uncovered while enabling the proper threading support has stopped them from merging the work-in-progress patches. However, they finally reached a point where they believe that the current work can be merged and the remaining problems can be resolved afterwards. More on that and the other LVM-related events happening during the last month in actually this report. So they have a, a build bot status update. So the LLVM switched to Git. That's the main news. Uh, and people... Uh, who are consuming that is uh, they also need to 
you know, pull that proper Git repo now. So probably the most important event uh, I've noticed that LLVM project has switched from Subversion to Git and moved the repositories to GitHub subsequently. Uh, while the original plan provided for maintaining the old repositories as read-only mirrors, as of today, this still hasn't been implemented. So for this reasons, they were forced to quickly switch BuildBot to the Git mono repo. Yeah, I think we, we talked about that uh, in the December episode a bit. Yeah, that they were still... Um, you know, switching between the two, but it's now the, the mono report that they're porting from. And they have uh, monthly regression reports. So <laughs> the usual list of what they broke this time, <laughs> as they write, LLDB has been given a new API for handling files, in particular for passing them to Python scripts. And a change of API has caused some bad file descriptor errors, and that's... Uh, what they're dealing with here but they've been able to determine what the error was and produced this and uh, invoked uh, on a file descriptor referring to standard in and they fixed that type conversion method not to flush read only bit uh, file descriptors uh, then they added a bit more uh, tests that reveal the platform process list dash v command on NetBSD, missed the listing of the process name and fixed that also and another new test failed see that's why we have tests or you should have tests. Uh, due to a target not implementing shell expand arguments API, apparently the only target actually implemented it, that's implementing it is Darwin. And so they just mark test custom shell X fail on all BSD targets. So that's dealt with. Uh, there's also uh, news about new LLD work. They've uh, been asked to rebase the LLD patches for the new code base or for a new code they had adding. And while doing that, they finally committed the dash Z non GNU stack option patch from January, last January, that is. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, Camel seemed working on finally resolving a longstanding impasse on LLD design. He's working on a new NetBSD specific front end to LLD that would satisfy our system wide linker requirements without modifying the standard driver used by other platforms. Okay, and further down below, there's a bit more info about the LLDB threading work. Uh, so enabling the thread support revealed a problem in the register API in prospection specific to NetBSD. The API responsible for passing registers in groups to Python was unable to rename some of the groups in NetBSD, and the null names have caused the test register iterator to fail. Threading support made this specifically visible by replacing a regular test failure with Python code error. Ah, yes, that's not the output you're expecting. <laughs> so in order to resolve the problem, they had to describe all supported register sets in NetBSD register context, and they have a separate post for that, or a link to GitHub issues. Uh, the code was roughly based on the Linux equivalent, modified to match register sets used by our ptrace API, and interestingly, they had to also include MPX registers that are currently unimplemented, as otherwise LDB implicitly put them in an anonymous group. Moving on, we have an interesting... Change coming into OpenBSD, I guess, uh, late last year, actually. Open SSH support for U2F and FIDO-based hardware tokens. Uh, so Damian Miller, one of the maintainers of OpenSSH, says, I just committed all of the dependencies for OpenSSH uh, security keys, like U2F, as support to the base of OpenBSD and tweaked OpenSSH to use them directly. This means there is no additional configuration hoops to jump through to use your U2F or FIDO2 security keys uh, on an OpenBSD system. So hardware-backed keys can be generated using the SSH keygen utility if you set the type to ECDSA-SK uh, or ED25519-SK if you want to, or if your token supports the, the newer algorithm. 
Um, many tokens require to be touched or tapped to confirm this step um, so that people can just add extra tokens to your, your or extra keys to your token. Uh, you'll get a public-private key pair back as usual, except in this case, the private key does not contain a highly sensitive private key, but instead holds a key handle that is used by this uh, security token to derive the real private key at signing time. Um, so stealing a copy of the private key file without also stealing your physical security key, or at least access to it, should not give the attacker anything of use. Oh, good. Uh, once you have generated a key, you can use it normally, like adding it to an agent or copying it to the destination's authorized keys file. At authentication time, you will be prompted to tap your security key uh, to confirm the uh, signature operation. Uh, and this makes theft of access attacks against security keys more difficult as well. Since even if someone compromises your machine and can ask your token to sign stuff, um, it's going to require you to tap to do that. Uh, and so if you weren't expecting it, you'll know something is amiss. Mm -hmm. um, but they say, please test this thoroughly. It's a rather big change. Uh, and we'd like to have it stable before the next release. Yeah. So test this uh, with YubiKeys or any other security tokens that you might have laying around. And yeah, adds an extra layer of security for OpenSSH. Yeah, uh, and it'll be interesting how much of this is uh, generic enough that it'll be available everywhere with OpenSSH, or how much of this you know we could implement on FreeBSD to get the same things. Ah, you mean the portable version? Uh, well, it's just you know, OpenSSH is obviously going to uh, the changes to OpenSSH are available to everyone basically when they're in the portable version. But uh, if there's any bits that we need to implement specifically in FreeBSD to support this, yes, uh, that's uh, something to look forward to in the new year. And, uh, oh, something else from Dragonfly BSD, next item, is the update to Linux 4.8.17 DRM 9.15. Uh, so they write that they now support the Broxton, Valley View, and Cherry View support, or they have improvements for those. Uh, Broadwell and Gen 9 Skylake support improvements as well. The Broadwell brightness fixes from OpenBSD were uh, imported, as well as atomic mode setting improvements and various bug fixes and performance enhancements. Ah, good. So you can enjoy those newer CPUs or uh, X11 support uh, on Dragonfly as well. Uh, currently, the the FreeBSD DRM stuff is at 4.16. You know, I know there's work going on in I think 4.18 or 5.0 even. But now that we have the Linux API layer, it makes it a little easier to keep going there. Yeah, it's uh, one stepping stone for the next higher version. And people are looking forward to actually have more support, uh, no matter it's the super latest version or just a little bit closer to the uh, last milestone. Time for Beastimits this week. We have some new items, although we're kind of worried at the beginning, uh, do people have something to to post at the beginning of the year? But we have a couple of items here. The first one that was exciting for many people, the Visual Studio Code port for FreeBSD. Yeah, so this has actually made it into the tree now. Uh, so... And it was just enough days ago now that there should be packages available. So yeah, if you just do package install VS Code, uh, you should end up with the working Visual Studio Code IDE on FreeBSD. Uh, people are looking forward to that because they want to use the editor that they may have used in other operating systems. So that's also available. And it's part of the uh, more higher or bigger initiative to uh, supply more Electron uh applications i would say so that's also a good way of having that in the ports collection so yeah thanks to the people who did that 
the OpenBSD syscall call from verification is here. Yeah, so this is, uh, we talked a little bit about this in the past, but this is uh, the change basically stops system calls from happening outside of the address ranges of libc. So if you manage to upload exploit code uh, containing a raw system call sequence and instruction, and then mprotect it minus write plus execute, that block, such a system call, will not succeed, uh, but the process is instead killed. This obliges the attacker to use the libc system call stubs, which in some circumstances are difficult to find because libc is randomly relinked every time you reboot your OpenBSD machine. This is done by adding one extra check to the fast path of the syscall not on a writable page check. Uh, for static binaries, the valid regions are the base program's text segment and the signal trampoline page. For dynamic binaries, the valid regions are ld.so's text segment and the signal trampoline and the rest of uh, libc.so's text segment and, of course, your main program's text. Uh, unfortunately, our current Go build model hasn't followed the Solaris macOS approach yet of calling the libc stubs and uses the inappropriate you know, embed the system call directly method. So for now, we'll need to authorize the main program text as well. A comment in alphaexec.c explains how that works. Uh, if Go is adapted to do the library-based system call stubs on OpenBSD, like it is on Solaris and macOS, uh, that program will go away. There may be other environments creating raw system calls. I guess we'll need to find them as time goes on. I think um, like uh, JRuby was doing the same thing. So that's Ruby compiled to run in the Java uh, virtual machine. Um, I know that it, that was causing problems with Puppet Server on FreeBSD 12 because of the um, uh, I know 64 changes because they were making uh, raw system calls instead of the libc stub. And so we're not seeing that the size of an inode had changed from 32 to 64 bits. Anyway, uh, the kernel performs most of these syscall allowed uh, registrations, but permissions uh, for libc.so is done by ld.so once, uh, once it randomly maps libc into the address space. This is uh, the purpose of the new m syscall system call. Cool. And then the uh, patch is attached as well if you're interested in how that works. Uh, then we have more from OpenBSD because uh, they made it work with PeerTube. Uh, in multiple uh, attempts first, but they got it done. So this is an article um, migrating their PeerTube instance from FreeBSD to OpenBSD. And they hope that to uh, inspire others to jump in right there and believe to be the first and only one to have done that yet. Okay. So the PeerTube release used is 1.4.1 uh, because newer releases seem a bit buggy uh, or don't work. Uh, but they wanted to do that and made it work. So they have described their steps, how they got there with, uh, of course, the start. Uh, they had the PeerTube instance running on FreeBSD hosted on a VPS, which is uh, on a, in this case, non-profit French community-driven ISP and had just tested and succeeded in installing and running an instance on the home server. So now they can do the same in production. And the first step was not so successful. And uh, talked a little bit about how they started the first OpenBSD installation. Then they had uh, a section on the second try. So uh, third try even. And then the actual PeerTube installation now that they went through some of the hoops that didn't work or some of the necessary steps that didn't lead into the proper way. So now they have one that is the proper way to run PeerTube or to do the PeerTube installation. 
then I guess they needed to, oh yes, uh, do an R-sync with, uh, because they didn't want to lose the contents from the old peer tube. So they synced the old stuff over to the new. And uh, once that was done, they wanted also to make some changes to their home partition and some other storage devices or storage exports. And so they describe everything in here, uh, all the changes you need to make, all the software you need to install, and files you need to edit for some configuration. Then uh, we have fuzzing the file system or file systems on NetBSD via AFL plus KCOF. Yes, so this is uh, one of the talks from EuroBSDCon. Ah, yes, I remember. Uh, it's the video. Cool, so that's available now and people should check it out if they want to do a bit more, uh, learn about fuzzing in general or how to fuzz file systems or if they want to see how AFL and KCOF work. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting to start looking at file systems that way. Are all the talks from EuroBSDCon available now? think all of them are up, yes. Yeah, so that's a bit more for a rainy day. Um, I guess people <laughs> did a lot of catching up on watching <laughs> conference stuff over the holidays. Uh, but yeah, there's still some stuff left. All right. Um, ah, we found a tweet here for Twitterbot for Prop 65. If you're not familiar, uh, Prop 65 in California requires these big visible labels uh, for anything the state of California knows to be harmful. Um, so, you know, if something contains lead or solder or something like that, it can say, the state of California, or it's known to the state of California that this can cause birth defects. Ah. Uh, or, you know, you see uh, one that says, you know, drinking is harmful to pregnant women and so on. Uh, and they, so they have these labels on all kinds of things because of this. Uh, and so this Twitter bot uh, just randomly tweets once an hour uh, that, you know, blah is known by the state of California to cause cancer. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, in this random tweet from November, using the Microsoft Azure Logic Apps backend system, uh, is Docker is known by the state of California to cause cancer. Ah, okay. So beware. Uh, <laughs> stay away from that. Um, yeah, so it's a little fun tweet, so it's not too serious, but uh, we thought it would be interesting to include it in the show. Uh, the next is more uh, educational, I would say. So we found an interactive Vim tutorial op over at openvim.com. And so it gives you a, a ter little terminal window and the keyboard below, because then for some of the commands that you need to enter, it's very interactive. Uh, it will highlight the keys that you need to press to like jump around or remove uh, some words in there. So it's always a little bit of an exercise and it explains what you should do, like which keys to press, like HKJL. And uh, so this way you can learn how to use Vim properly. And so they let you move around and delete words. And then once you're done, it will move uh, to the next exercise. So in a couple of like 19 exercises, you should get the very basics. Yes, also how to exit the editor um, done. And you can then like do interesting things like inserting uh, new lines uh, above or below the current position. So some of the things that uh, some people don't know, even I learned something new here. So check it out. It's quite nice to have this interactive experience. If you have never used Vim before, I guess this is a good introduction. Uh, they, they bury the how to exit Vim in the final chapter in about switching to real Vim. <laughs> so you have to work all the way to the end. Well, I don't see a chapter actually entitled S Exiting Vim. <laughs> <laughs> but this Vim is just a, a browser tab away to closing. It's not the real Vim. But it does the same, uh, teaching you the same. So you can tr try it out in the real Vim and it will work just the same. 
Ah, yes, and this is also the year of uh, conferences and meetups. And the first BSD user group meeting in Hamilton is on February 11, 2020, uh, from 6.30 uh, at the Boston Pizza on Upper James Street. Uh, after some conjoling from some other people, uh, I'm going to try to start having a, a BSD meetup in Hamilton, although it's not certain it'll be in Hamilton every time. We're still trying to figure that out. It's one of the things we'll discuss at the first meeting. You know, it might be slightly broader and do it like a Southwest Ontario or something like that. Because we have people from like London and Kitchener and Hamilton, Toronto and so on. But the idea is that, well, you know, rather than waiting around, uh, we've just picked a date, uh, February 11th. Basically, I think our goal is going to be do this the second Tuesday of each month to have uh, basically a meeting. Um, our first one, I just... Picked a restaurant that was close enough to the highway to make it easier for people coming from out of town. You know, it doesn't have to be a regular meeting place or anything. Uh, but we're going to have our first meeting. So I just picked the date and time. You know, um, at the meeting, we can discuss if there be a better date or time uh, or a better location or if we should have rotating hosting. Although it might be easier to build up a base of users if we stay in the same place. I don't know. Uh, we don't have any talk schedule for the first one. It's just going to be, you know, whatever people want to talk about. Uh, so if people want to do little impromptu presentations, but um, like I'm not picturing people bringing laptops, but I'm sure that they can if they want. Anyway, so we'll have some general BSD discussions planned for future meetings. And, you know, I haven't really settled on the name of the group. I just hijacked an old domain I had, studybsd.com, <laughs> to put something up that I can point people to. Um, but maybe we'll pick a real name and get to the website and a Twitter account and all that nonsense. But yes, so if uh, you're anywhere in the area in southern Ontario, uh, February 11th, come out to the Boston Pizza and meet up. And we'll be doing general BSD discussion, planning future meetings, trying to name the group. Uh, I'm sure we'll do BSD and ZFS question and answer session uh, between myself and some of the other people that are coming. I'm sure we can answer most questions that you might have. Uh, if you have copies of the FreeBSD mastery books that you want autographed, you can bring those. Uh, I'll be there to do that. And uh, Groff will make an appearance too. So Ooh. if you want to get your picture taken with Groff the BSD goat, you can do that. Or whatever else uh, you, I can entice people to, <laughs> to come out and uh, give this a try. And we'll see if we can get uh, some people and, and make this a regular thing. Yeah, I like the initiative. So you never know what, what comes out of it or how you establish something new. And yeah, I look forward to hearing what how it went. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes you, you end up feeling like you're the only BSD person in your geographical region. Uh, but if you look harder, sometimes that's not the case. I think I found uh, randomly in the ZFS channel on, on Freenode. There was some guy that was hosting a, a rescue image off his ISP's website or whatever, or the, the website of an ISP he runs. And I noticed that they're based in Hamilton. I'm like, well, I need to reach out to this guy and be like, hey, hmm. even if you're a Linux person, if you're a ZFS person, you should come to this meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, You never know who's living down the road, who's using or has the same interests in operating systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. So that will... We'll hear about, I guess, or we'll have future announcements of further meetings, maybe. So uh, that's, yeah. Hopefully. Very nice. And yeah, like I said, uh, we might decide that it makes sense to rotate through some different locations to make it easier for people to come out. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have one in Kitchener or something, but uh, the first one will be in Hamilton. Uh, and if 
everybody could come out, that'd be great. Make the first one successful. Time for uh, the feedback and questions section that people are always looking forward to, I hear. But it will be very empty in a section and lonely for us without reading stuff that you send in to us uh, or into uh, our little mailbox archive that we have. So it's feedback at bsdnow.tv, as always, for show notes, comments, questions, everything that you found or want to discuss with us or want us to try to answer it. And... Uh, that is your address. Uh, the first one who did that, I think in the last year still, uh, was Samir uh, about Sijit. And uh, Samir writes, uh, Hey, gents, I continue to enjoy your show each week. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the work you put into it. Ah, yes, yeah. It's very streamlined at some point, uh, but still it's work, yeah. Uh, so I just thought I'd share a short post I wrote about how to install Sijit on FreeBSD in case anyone's looking for a lightweighty way to browse Git repos on FreeBSD. That's good. We should have put that in one of the show items. Cool. Uh, people should check that out. Definitely good to have. Uh, yeah, thanks for the write-up. Uh, so yeah, thanks for writing it up. Maybe it's helping one of our listeners. And uh, who knows? Maybe you get some uh, good feedback there. Uh, yeah, so thanks for this. And see, it's it's already starting good this year with the feedback section. Uh, not just asking questions, but also providing good stuff for other people. Uh, next one is Russell uh, about R. Ah, uh, Russell, hi, it's R again. I'm curious, are there any good primers slash how-to slash inspiration books for using VLANs? I have a few smart switches in my house and I think I want to set up VLANs, especially involving my FreeNAS, uh, Plexin, etc., uh, but I'm not quite sure where to start or what to do. I'm not sure if Michael W. Lucas has a book I'm unaware of. Quick Googling didn't turn anything up. Um, I think um, networking for sysadmins or something it's called uh, might actually be what you're looking for there. Um, so VLANs are basically just a way to have virtual switches. So the idea is that you know you have your one physical switch, but you can subdivide it so that it actually looks like a bunch of separate switches so that you know all the boxes plugged into switch A don't even can't talk to the things plugged into switch B. Uh, it gets slightly more complicated in that you can virtually subdivide an individual port. So, like if you have a FreeNAS, you can create multiple VLANs on the same physical port. So that one cable, some of the packets will be tagged uh, or will be untagged, meaning they work just like a normal switch, uh, or they might be tagged saying, oh, this packet is for VLAN 17. Uh, and when the switch sees that, okay, I'll put that as if it's in virtual switch number 17. And so that packet can't escape and, and be seen by machines that are in virtual LAN 16 or the untagged VLAN. Ah, yes, yeah. So, you know, the problem with, say, putting your FreeNAS and your Plex in a different VLAN um, is, you know, now your TV needs to be in that VLAN if you want it to talk to Plex. Uh, maybe that's what you want. Maybe you want it so that, you know, Plex and your TV are in a VLAN with nothing else. Uh, that way your your smart TV can't, you know, start poking at other things. Uh, but yes, I think that the book you're probably looking for, although I can't guarantee that. Um, yes, it's called Networking for System Administrators and the cover has a bunch of mushrooms on it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That... <laughs> No, no special mushrooms, but uh, yeah, you get the idea. Because of the subterranean uh, network they, they form, I guess that's why. Uh, essentials of TCP IP, IPv6, diagnosing problems, physical wiring through to DNS. Uh, 
Um, it doesn't mention uh, VLAN specifically in the description, but I imagine it covers it. Or if other people have uh, suggestions for how-tos or tutorials for that specific networky thing, uh, send it to us and we'll link you to, or mention it on the show because other people might also wonder. But yeah, just kind of think of it as a hardware way, although it's not, uh, of implementing different subnets. So that, uh, you know, in each different VLAN, you'll have a different IP subnet uh, and they won't be able to see each other unless you have a router that's in all of them that will actually route packets. So, you know, at my house, we only have three VLANs. There's the regular one for my house, which is upstairs, basically. The office one, which is downstairs. Uh, and then there's uh, one for the guest Wi-Fi that contains nothing but the Wi-Fi router and the internet router. Yeah, see, sometimes uh, you encounter these by seeing maybe the they, some applications ask you when they do network configuration about the VLAN tag. Or in IF config, you see the HW VLAN tagging. But yeah, this is just uh, specifics for that. Well, HW VLAN tagging just means that you don't have to rewrite the packets in software. You can just tell the NIC to do it. Um, but yeah, uh, generally, if you create VLANs in FreeBSD, they will show up as completely separate network cards, basically, even though they're based on the same physical card. Okay, that should get you started. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for that question, Russell. And uh, the last one this week is Wolfgang with a question. I used the German pronunciation here. Uh, so Wolfgang writes, hello, good people of BSD Now. Do you know who he means? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, thank you for this show, he writes. Uh, that has been entertaining and educating me since B.B. Oh, before Benedict. Oh, okay. I get that. Okay, cool. That, that's a new... Okay, I have been using open source operating systems since I have been a teenager, mostly Linux though. Unfortunately, I only got a chance to use open source operating systems professionally during an internship uh, once, never in my day job. Recently, I was, I was able to make some positive change at the company I work for by installing a FreeNAS server. Huh. Hooray. The server used to be the ESXi host for eight Windows server guests in the office. We are now using the server for backups and network storage. Since the server has the capacity, I thought of virtualizing some things using Beehive with limited success. I ran a Windows Server 2012 uh, R2 guest and had heavy performance issues until using the timer tool. The server uh, was used for some tests and the performance issues did not hinder the tests much. After successful testing, the guest was deleted. I then tried to use the zone minder running on Ubuntu Server 18.4.3 LTS. Uh, and this guest also ran awfully slow, despite not being heavy on RAM, CPU, etc. Uh, since I did not want to spend too much time on it, I decided to just use the ZoneMinder plugin instead, surprisingly with the same slow result. At this point, I assume it was uh, had to do something with the suboptimal ZFS configuration and the fact that I just don't have enough understanding of ZFS. Would you agree with this, or could I use another guest OS for Beehive? It really depends. Um... Like, you'd have to look at what the source of your performance issue was. Um, if the source of the performance issue is that your disk I.O. is too slow, then yes, maybe your suboptimal ZFS configuration, although you didn't provide any detail on your ZFS configuration, so I don't know if it is suboptimal. Yeah, so this is... What's the server doing? Is it uh, backups network storage? So that might be I.O. mostly? Yeah, uh, it's hard to say what the problem is like the Windows Server thing you mentioned something about a timer tool and it's like yes getting the um, uh, virtual clock and so on working right can be uh, a big a thing that makes a big impact for performance but I don't know why Ubuntu would seem slow and uh, like 
what is it about ZoneMinder that's slow? Is it slow right into the disk or is it actually something to do with CPU time? So maybe that needs an update or a bit more clarification that helps us to pinpoint that possible error or source of the uh, slowness. Or if anyone else has an idea with maybe Windows Server 2012 something uh, or some of these other operating systems mentioned that might have just the thing that is needed for, to give proper performance, uh, send this to us and we'll uh, continue this discussion. I don't know, maybe the very first one is if you run uh, gstat, as in gmstat, uh, dash p, as in papa. So if you run gmstat dash p on the host, uh, and it'll show each hard drive and how busy it is, if the busyness numbers are getting into the 70s or 100%, uh, they'll change color. If that's happening a lot, then yes, your disks are busy, which may either be a suboptimal configuration or just a lot of work. Uh, and that can cause slowness of the workload if you know the disk can't keep up with the amount of work you're giving it. Uh, then that would be the problem. If you're not seeing that, then you need to keep looking and, and you know figure out uh, what's being slow or um, even just describe in what way you feel it is slow. Uh, then we'll try to help you with uh, if we get more detail to us. That seems like we're we're done for today, or at least in this episode. Uh, so thanks for listening in. Uh, again, if you have anything, news, uh, ideas, stories that you want to relate to us, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, 